Our sermon text reading is from Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, found on page 7 in the handout. For this reason, I bow my knee, uh, knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't had an opportunity to meet yet, my name is Jerry Riando. I'm on staff here at Redeemer Detroit. Uh, I'm going through the process of ordination, which is the process of becoming a pastor. Uh, my wife and I moved here over the summer, and our hope is that this process will end with us planting a sister church of Redeemer in Dearborn, uh, where we have moved. If you're interested in hearing more about that at any point, I'd love to talk to you guys. Uh, but this morning, I have the privilege of preaching to you from God's Word. We're continuing our series on the book of Ephesians, and we have come to a critical pivot point in the book of Ephesians. If you wanted to outline the book of Ephesians in the most simple way possible, you could just do this. You could say chapters one through three, which is what we preached up to this point, is Paul telling us who we are in Christ. As Christians, what is true about us? And then chapters four through six, which we'll be preaching over the next few months, is Paul telling us the implications of that reality. So one through three is who we are. Four through six is how therefore we individually and as a church community should live as a result. And stuck right in the middle of that division is the prayer that was just read for us this morning. And it's a prayer that uh, serves as, a, again, a pivot point between these two sections. Paul introduces this prayer with the words, for this reason. Now, of course, it's important to ask the question, what reason is Paul referring to? But something I find amusing about this introduction is uh, this is a second time Paul has sort of attempted to begin this prayer. If you go back to uh, verse one of chapter three, he begins by saying, for this reason, and then he sort of goes off in a tangential direction talking about the, uh, the stewardship that God has given him. And after 14 verses of tangent, he's just now coming back to the idea of this prayer, and he begins again, for this reason. So what's the reason? Why is he getting ready to pray? Well, I believe the reason is everything that he has just told us is true about us as followers of Jesus. Let me just remind you of some of the things Paul has said is true about you individually and this community corporately. In chapter one, he says that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You've been adopted as children of God. And as adopted children of God, you have a glorious inheritance available for you. And in chapter two, he tells us that we are those who were dead, but have been made alive. We've been seated with Christ in heaven. We are God's masterpiece, his workmanship. We were strangers and aliens, and now we are fellow citizens with Jesus. We are those who lived 
in hostility, not only with God, but with one another. And now that hostility, a way has been made for peace in that hostility through Jesus. So that is the reason, and then Paul continues, uh, and he says, he's telling us he's getting ready to pray by saying that he bows his knees. Now, I think in, in, in many parts of our culture, bowing your knees is a common way to pray. If you grew up in a Catholic or an Anglican tradition or an Episcopal tradition, you might have actually bowed during the church service, or even just in your private devotions, you might bow while you pray. But for a first century Jew, this would not have been the normal everyday way of praying. You would typically stand to pray, and only for specific uh, exceptional circumstances where you wanted to demonstrate a heightened level of submission, of reverence, and earnestness would you bow to pray. And so Paul is signaling to us here how important this prayer is to his own heart. And so the prayer that runs from verse 16 to verse 19, you could divide and chew. Uh, verse 16 to 17a, the first half of 17, and then 17b, the second half of 17, through 19. And what I believe Paul is doing here is he's actually expressing the same prayer twice. He expresses it once, and then he expresses it again, but adds some more details to it. You could add the words, in other words, the phrase, in other words, to the, the middle part of verse 17, and that would express what I think is going on here. Paul prays and he says, in other words, and then he prays it again ever so slightly. And so here's how I would summarize Paul's prayer. Paul prays that as beloved children of God, that the Ephesians would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in order that they would more fully grasp the riches of Christ's immeasurable love for them so that Christ would turn their hearts into his home. Or because the book of Ephesians is just as much for us today as it was for the first century Ephesians, we could say it this way. Paul prays that you, as a beloved child of God, would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in order that you may more fully grasp the riches of Christ's immeasurable love for you so that Christ would turn your heart into his home. And I think he expresses that prayer sort of twice in a row. And, and we'll look at, as, as we go through the prayer, we're gonna look at uh, of each part. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about three parts of the prayer. We'll look at the first and the second iteration of the prayer. But I think there's three things that we're gonna see. We're gonna see a, a foundation for Paul's prayer. We're gonna see a tool that Paul is praying that we would have. And we're gonna see a renovation project that Paul is praying would occur in our hearts. Paul uses some, some building uh, language, some like construction language in this, this prayer, and so I'm borrowing that for the outline, a foundation, a tool, and a renovation. So first, let's look at the foundation. You see, Paul is confident that his prayer will be answered because his prayer has a firm foundation, and that foundation is made up of three realities. The first reality we see in verse 14. Paul prays this prayer, he says, before the Father. Before the Father. He's not praying to a distant, unapproachable deity, but to a loving Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. Keller has, I think, just a, a really cool quote, a way of visualizing this. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. 
The only person that dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is, ch- is his child. And he says, we, as God's children, have that kind of access to God. And in describing who this father is, he says an interesting phrase. He says, from whom, the father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I think I read six commentaries in this passage and discovered five different opinions of what this phrase means, but everyone agrees there is a play on words going on here that we don't quite catch in the English because the uh, Greek word for father is pater and the Greek word for family is patria. So there is a, uh, a deliberate play on words. They have the same root word. So some English translations have chosen to try to capture this by translating this verse, the father from whom fatherhood is named. The father from whom fatherhood is named. What does that mean? John Stott, the beloved commentator, uh, writes this. And I'm going to read his explanation, and then I'm going to try to explain it a little bit differently. But Stott says this. The very notion of fatherhood is derived from the fatherhood of God. In other words, the true relation between human fatherhood and the divine fatherhood is neither one of analogy, God is a father like human fathers, nor one of projection. This is Freud's theory that we have invented God because we needed a heavenly fatherhood, but rather one of derivation. God's fatherhood being the archetypical reality, the source of all conceivable fatherhood. What's Stott saying? Well, what is he explaining that he believes Paul is saying here? Well, he's saying that God is our father in a very different way than I think I used to understand this concept. I think when I was younger and I I read that God said that he was our father, I think I imagined God sort of up in heaven looking down at us and thinking, how in the world am I going to help them understand, my people understand, how I relate to them? He looked around, he said, what is there on earth that's similar? Oh, they have fathers. And, and so maybe if I called myself their father, they'd kind of get it, right? Rather, what Paul is saying here and John Stott is explaining is that when God created the world, he designed fatherhood into creation for us to better understand who God is and who he is in relationship to us. You see, God did not become a father when he created us or adopted us. God has existed as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, both loving the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit loving them. He has existed like that and he invited us into that relationship when he created us and then adopted us. And so when it came time to reveal himself to humanity, we already had a sense of who God was and who he is in relationship to us because we have human fathers. Now, I know for some of this, this is sort of a a joyful reminder, a joyful explanation, because maybe you have a a good relationship with your humanly father, and you can say, this is wonderful. Just like my dad loves me, God loves me that way, but even better. But for others of us, this is sort of an analogy of, of pain, right? We have maybe a very poor relationship with our father or no relationship at all. But yet, I still think that we can learn quite a bit from the fact that God reveals himself as our father. Because if we have a poor relationship with our father or no relationship, we we normally sense that. We have sort of a hole in our experience of, of love and acceptance. And that hole, God is saying, is a hole that God created us to have filled by him. 
So we have, that's the first part of this firm foundation, the fact that God is our father. Then in verse 16, we see the second part of this foundation. Paul prays this prayer. He says, according to the riches of his glory. It sounds like a great phrase, but what does it mean that Paul is praying this according to the riches of his glory? Well, every time in the book of Ephesians where Paul refers to God's riches, which is five times, it is always referring to God's riches toward you, his riches of kindness towards you, his riches of grace towards you, his riches of love, toward, of mercy towards you. And every time Paul refers to God's glory in the book of Ephesians, it's always the glory of God that is displayed by giving those riches to you, of uh, showering those riches to you. So Paul, the second part of his foundation for his prayer is he knows God will answer this prayer because God glories in lavishing grace and kindness on you as his people. The third foundation of this prayer is found in verse 17. Paul says that the Ephesians are rooted and grounded in love. They are a people who are rooted and grounded in love. And and we, as the church, as followers of Jesus, are also rooted and grounded in love. Paul loves to mix metaphors. He does it all the time. And he does it right here. To, To be rooted and grounded, those words are referring to the same concept, but one is like a botanical metaphor and the other is a construction metaphor. So, you know, we are people whose roots dig deep down into something. We are people who, have a, who are grounded, it's a construction word, have a foundation on something, both as individuals and as a church. And so what is it that our roots are digging into? What is it that our foundation is laid on? Well, it is, Paul says, the fact that God loves you. The foundation of who you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that God loves you. The most important reality for you is that you are one who is loved by God. So Paul has great confidence that his prayer will be answered because it has a firm foundation. That foundation is that he is asking a loving father. He's asking a God who glories and lavishing riches on his people. And he's talking, he's praying for a people whose foundational reality is that they are built and rooted in the love of of God, not their love for God, but God's love for them. So that's the foundation, that's the first part of the prayer. The second aspect of this prayer I want us to see is that God offers us a tool here. He offers us a tool to accomplish something. Uh, He prays specifically that we would have power. Verse 16 says, uh, Paul prays that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So this is a power that comes through the Holy Spirit. You see, God the Spirit is the person of the Trinity who applies what Christ, another person of the Trinity, has won for you. So the Father has, has planned your salvation. Christ has accomplished it. And then the Holy Spirit takes that salvation and applies it, Paul says, in your inner being. But how is he doing the application here? What is this power, this tool empowering you to do exactly? Or what is, maybe we could ask, what is the tool the Holy Spirit is offering to you? Well, I think we see it in verse 18. Paul says this, that he prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
So what is the Holy Spirit empowering you to do? He's empowering you to comprehend God's love for you. You see, in the first three chapters, and really specifically in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been describing to you and to the Ephesians what it means that God loves you. That whole list of things that we said were true of us, those are all aspects of the reality that God loves you. And now, before he's, he turns and tries to uh, explain how that should affect how we live, he's pausing to pray that we would somehow have the strength to really, actually, deeply comprehend and believe what Paul has told us is true about us in those two chapters, in those three chapters. And the main thing he wants us to know here is that this love that God has for us is huge. It has great height and depth and length and width. You know, and over time, some commentators have tried helpfully to help us understand what it might mean that God's love is long rather than wide. And, and so maybe it's, it's wide because it encompasses both Jew and Gentile, we learn. Maybe it's high because it bridges the gap between heaven and earth. And those are all helpful concepts, but the, the most important thing that Paul is trying to communicate here is that God's love is enormous. It's gargantuan. It, is, it, it extends in every direction. It's so huge, and this is a love for you. It's so huge that it surpasses our ability to comprehend it. It surpasses knowledge, Paul says. It is actually impossible for you or I to fully understand how much God loves us. Not just because we are sinful, though we are, but because we're finite and it is infinite. When I was younger and I used to ask my mom just long series of questions, it was usually like, well, why? Well, why that? Well, why that, you know? Sometimes we'd reach the end of her ability to explain and she'd say, well, you know what? We'll understand when we get to heaven. And that's probably true for many things, but for God's love for us, it's not fully true. Because we, even when we get to heaven, we may no longer be sinful, but we're still gonna be finite. And we are going to spend eternity learning more and more about what it means that God loves us and how great that love is for us. In 10,000 years, you will still be delighted and surprised to learn something new or a new aspect of what it means that God loves you in Christ Jesus. And yet, and yet, Paul still has the audacity to pray that we would know this love. He prays specifically that, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How in the world do you know something that surpasses knowledge? That's, those are mutually exclusive. You can't know something if it's beyond knowledge. Well, I think maybe Paul has, has two thoughts in mind here. The first is, how do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, the same way that the Colorado River carved out the Grand Canyon, little bit by little bit. Paul is praying that today, you would understand just a little bit more the vastness of Christ's love for you, the vastness of it. And that tomorrow, maybe you would understand it just a little bit more by the Holy Spirit working in your heart, through the preaching of God's word, through the reading of scriptures, that you would know just a little bit more of it. That's one way that we can know something that surpasses knowledge, but I think there's a second way. And that's knowing through experiencing. There's a way we, we learn things 
through experience is a little bit different the way we know through knowledge. So before I had my, my first child, Virginia, um, everyone told me that I was going to love this child. Everyone told me, and I believed it. I knew it. I knew it from experience of watching parents love their children. I knew it because the people who told me were trustworthy. I completely agreed and believed it. But then Virginia was born, and I held her in my arms, and I looked at those beautiful blue eyes, and I said, oh, I had no idea what it meant that I was going to love this child, right? I knew it. I never doubted it, but I never, I didn't know it until she was in my arms, it was a way of grasping a truth and grasping a love through experience that's a little bit more complete sometimes and purely knowing it through knowledge. I think we need to acknowledge there is, there is something in this passage that you might call mystical or at least experiential, right? There's an experiential aspect to this. Have you, have, you cannot fully grasp the love of Christ entirely with your head, but the Holy Spirit, Paul says, can help you experience it with your heart. Have you ever been overwhelmed experientially by the love of God for you? The other day, I was supposed to be leading a community group, but instead my daughter re-injured her, her broken collarbone and I had to go to the emergency room with her and um, we ended up spending a lot of time together that evening. We were there for about seven hours and um, so I had a lot of time to just, and, and my phone died about 45 minutes into this. And so I had a lot of time to just look at my daughter and think about how much I loved her, which I did. It was wonderful. And she is, if you know my daughter, Alice, she is just adorable. She's beautiful. She's fun. She's energetic. Um, she's spunky. She's all these wonderful things. And I just looked at her and I just, oh man, I love this little girl. And simultaneously, because I loved her so much, I was really deeply grieved by the fact that she was in pain. She kept kind of pointing to her broken collarbone and oh man, it just, oh, I just, I, I wanted to just take that hurt from her and take it myself. And, and then I had this, and the Holy Spirit reminded me, Jerry, you, you have a child, but you are God's child. And I was just overwhelmed. This, this love that I've been thinking about for my daughter, that is how God thinks about me as his child, but even more, even more perfectly because I am a broken, sinful, imperfect father, and he is a perfect, not sinful father. And it, it overwhelmed me. I think, so as good Presbyterians, we rightly focus a lot of time and a lot of energy on knowing true things about God. And that is so important because you can't love God Actually, if you don't know who he is as he has revealed himself to us in his word. Because if we, if we don't really know who God is and we, we, we think he's something other than he really is and we're loving that thing, we're not really loving God. We're loving something that we invented on our own. We have to love the God who is revealed to us in scripture. We have to know who he is. But we can't focus on knowledge without also remembering that the Lord is also the Lord of our affections. And he loves us dearly, and he desires that we would respond in loving him dearly as well. So this, the power that Paul is praying for, it comes from grasping this unknowable, incomprehensible, gargantuan love of Christ. And what does this power accomplish? Well, that leads us to the last part of this prayer, and that is a renovation a renovation project. In verse 17, Paul prays 
that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Or as verse 19 says the same thing, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's repeating, he's sort of saying the same thing in two different ways, that you are, you may, Christ may dwell in your heart through faith and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Here's what's odd about this. This is not an evangelistic prayer. Paul is not praying for people who don't know Jesus. He's praying for the Ephesians who do already know Jesus. So what, why is he praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith? Isn't Christ already, if you're a follower of Jesus, don't we believe that the Holy Spirit comes upon you uh, when salvation, in fact, you cannot be saved unless the Holy Spirit's already working in your heart. And so Christ is dwelling in you in one sense, the Holy Spirit being in you. Yes, that's true. But this word dwell here, it may be the difference between uh, the concept of making something your home and simply occupying it. And you know, we've all occupied places for a time being, whether it was a hotel room or a rental property that we're only staying for a few months in or a dorm in college. And then there's places that we have made our home. When I, uh, my wife and I moved to Harrisonburg, which was the last place we lived before coming here, we bought a house that we just, we loved the bones of this house, but we hated basically every stylistic choice the previous owners had, had imposed upon the house, right? We had a very different style, I think, than the previous owners. And so for the six years we lived in the house, the five years we lived in the house, it was a delight every time we were able to save up and change something small about the house. And so like there were these sconces in the living room that had these like dangly beads on them that it's just very different than our style. And we, we, took, we took the sconces down and we replaced them with some others. And it was like, oh, this is, more, this is more my house now. All right, so bear with this metaphor for a second. Bear with it, because I think it's helpful, but no metaphor is perfect. You know, Christ bought the home of your heart. In fact, he prayed, paid a great price for it. It cost him his blood and he had to experience the, the wrath of God to obtain it. He loves the bones of it. He made them. But he's not always thrilled with your style choices. And by style choices, I mean your sin. He's not thrilled by our sin. He, he, in fact, he hates it. And if Christ dwells in our heart, if he makes it his home, he is going to do some really major renovations. And that is part of what chapters four through six is telling us. We've learned who Christ is, or who we are in Christ, and now we're gonna learn about this renovation project in four through six that Christ is going to do in our hearts. It's gonna affect how we relate to one another, how we relate to our families, and many, many other things. This is the difference between the Christian concept of justification and sanctification. Justification is what God does to save you. He looks at you and he says, look, I know that you are sinful, I know that you've rebelled against me. I know, uh, I know these things, but I am choosing to declare you as and tr- declare you as righteous and treat you as if you were not sinful, because Christ has paid for your sins. He's paid the price, and the sanctification is the work of God to over time renovate our hearts and turn our lives to be more and more functionally righteous, to actually reflect the kind of life that God wants for us. But what is the power Paul is telling us that does this renovation? It's gratitude. It's gratitude for God's love for us. I met a couple of uh, 
uh, a young guys, college freshmen on, at Uni- University of Michigan at Dearborn the other day who uh, were from Lebanon. And uh, I saw them and sat down with them and we just started chatting and um, they, they shared with me that they, had, they came from a Muslim background and they said something that I, I often hear from guys from Muslim backgrounds when we're talking about faith. They said, you know what, Muslims and Christians, you know, fundamentally they, they believe the same thing, the religion's about the same thing. And, you know, and I asked him, well, what is that thing that you think that we're, we're about? And he said, well, we're just, we're trying to live good lives, lives in line with God's uh, moral decrees so that we can please God. And I said that, you know, I, I hear that, but I, can, I, can I share with you how I think Christianity might be a little bit different? And I tried to explain this reality that God loved us and saved us and then begins to transform our hearts and renovate our hearts so that we can uh, live lives that are pleasing to him. And one of them said something pretty profound. He, he totally got it. He said, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying Christians don't try to live good lives to please God? or in order to go get to heaven, in order to make God love them, but instead they try to live good lives because they're so grateful that God already loves them? I said, yes, that's exactly right, you, you got it. And he, he paused a second, thought about it, he goes, well, that's way better. That's way better. Because uh, he goes, in the, the first case, it's kind of selfish, you're just doing good things so you can get into heaven. On the other side, you're doing good things because you're so grateful, which is an overflow from your heart. So pray for these guys. It's really cool. They showed up in my Bible study the other week too. It was really fun. Look, I need to pause here because these are things that are true of followers of Jesus, right? This, what Paul describes in chapters one through three and really specifically in one through two, he is saying are things that are true about followers of Jesus. And if, if you are not a follower of Jesus, these things would not yet be true of you. This love is not yet um, uh, true of you. And so I do want you to know that becoming a Christian is a process of repentance and faith. We, we believe as people that we are those who have sinned and are sinners, and that what it means is that we've looked at God's standards and said, those, those are not mine, right? I don't want that. I want to be my own ruler. And repentance is turning from those sins to God, right? And that is, and having faith that Christ's work on the cross will save us. And then good works will follow. Good works will follow, but they, the motivation will be gratitude, not uh, a desire to prove ourselves to God. So in summary, in summary, this prayer has three parts. There is a foundation, there is, and that foundation is three parts, that God is a loving father, that, we, uh, that, he, that he's a God who lavishes rich gifts on his people, and that we are a people who's pro- who are founded on the reality that we are loved from, by God. It offers a tool, and that tool is comprehending the love of Christ, the unknowable love of Christ, and it promises a renovation, a reconstruction of our hearts. So how does this affect how we live? How does it affect, for instance, how I, how I parent? Well, my, it means one of my main jobs as a daddy is to help my ch- kiddos understand how much Jesus loves them. And here's the crazy thing for, for moms and dads. According to this passage, one of the best ways that we can help our children understand how much 
Jesus loves us and the Father loves us is by loving our kids the way that God loves us. We won't do it perfectly, but if, as we do that and they learn more and more the reality that God is their heavenly Father, they will apply how they've seen us love them as mothers and fathers to that knowledge of God. How does it affect how I pursue my own spiritual growth and life? Well, I think it transforms the way that I look at the things we might call the, the disciplines of faith. Things like reading the Bible regularly, praying regularly, regular attendance at church. I think if I believe wrongly that the, uh, the, that the Christian life is one of trying to live a life to please God, to, to get into heaven, then I, I will see those disciplines as sort of boxes I have to check to earn some sort of cosmic extra credit or uh, brownie points. But really the reason that God has given us these means, these disciplines, the reason he's given us a scripture, the reason he's given us Sunday morning worship and communion and, and the preaching of the word is because these are all avenues that God is able to communicate to us his love for us. As we read the scriptures on every page in the Bible, there is something we can learn about either how sinful I am or how merciful Christ is which reminds me of the gap that Christ had to fill for me. So when I, I miss church, it's a problem not primarily because God is taking attendance, but because I miss out on one of the greatest opportunities that God has given us to understand his love for us more and more. And this is important because as people, as human beings, we follow our loves. We do what we love to do. And when we love Christ, we follow Christ. When we love our sin, well, we follow our sins. It's just, it's just human nature. When I, when I sin, it's because, at least in that moment, I love my sin more than I love Jesus. And these, these disciplines are things that God has given us to just help our hearts understand God's love more, which will lead to gratitude, which will lead to me loving Jesus more. Here's a little piece of, of good news. Christ was fully God and is also fully man. He had a human nature. And so he, like us, followed his loves. Now his loves were perfect because he was not sinful. So the things he loved were always good things. But think about this. Why did Jesus die on the cross for you? What was he doing when he was dying on the cross for you? Well, he was pursuing what he loved. He loves you. And he was willing to do something that cost him greatly, infinitely more than we'll ever understand, because he loved us. He accomplished chapters one through two of Ephesians for you, out of love. And here's the fun thing about the Christian life. That same love that saved us, understanding that love is the same love that empowers us to live out chapters four through six, to live a life that's honoring to God. And it's comprehending that reality that is able, that is, is what empowers us to live out the life. So, so in closing, I would love to pray for you the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians here. So if you would pray with me, that'd be great. Father God, for this reason, we bow our knees before you. The one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of your glory, you may strengthen us 
to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Amen.